The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, shortly after David had become king of the Israelites, the king of the Ammonites, a man named Nahash, died. And because Nahash had shown David kindness when David was fleeing from Saul and throughout his early, early life, David sent ambassadors to express his sympathy to the place of the Ammonites. But when David's ambassadors arrived, the Ammonite commanders told their new master that David was sending spies into their land. And what David really wanted to do was to take them over. And what the king of the Ammonites did then was always kind of makes me chuckle. It's one of those things you read about in the Bible that you can't, kind of don't really believe that it's there. He cuts off half their beards and then he cut off their robes at the buttocks is what the Bible says. So if you can imagine that for a moment, having your robe cut off right here. And then he sends these ambassadors back to David so they could return in shame. And to make a very long story short, between three chapters, David goes to war against the Ammonites, and he completely defeats them. One of the things that we can learn about this story, and again, this is in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 10 to 12. One of the things that we can learn about this story is that we need to be pretty cautious about the way we attribute motive to other people. We need to be very mindful of the way we think about what other people are doing and apply a motive to their lives. We don't know what we don't know. And what we don't want to do, especially as followers of Christ, is rush to judgment in the midst of that. One of the things I like about reading the Bible, excuse me for a second, One of the things I love about reading the Bible is when the Bible reads me. Have you ever been read by the Bible? You know what I mean by that? Text tells us that it's a mirror. And it accurately reflects the truth of who God is. And it accurately, accurately reflects the truth of who we are back onto us. And that's what I mean when I say the Bible reads me. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 says this. The word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eye, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Here's what this text is telling us. When we read the Bible, and we read it mindfully, the Bible will cut us open. And it will expose the very inmost parts of us our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. It just completely exposes us to the truth of God, and to God himself. And this past week in Staff Review, as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, the Bible 
The Bible actually read us as we read through it. It's found on page 711 on the Bibles of the seatbacks in front of you if you want to follow along. But we're going to read today 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, and I would love for you to follow along with me. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, for now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. For Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the good news and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Knowing what we know about the church, and we're going to talk a little bit about that here in a moment, knowing what we know about the church and the personalities that founded the church, as this text was being read, one of the things I like when we cover this in staff review, I always like someone else to read it. Because as you've probably experienced, we each sort of read scripture a different way. There's different words we emphasize or different sentence pieces or sentence structure that we emphasize. So I always, I always like it when someone else reads the text. And as this text was being read, the more they got into the text, this, this sinking feeling started to fill my gut about this text. And when we were done, we sat around and we talked for a few minutes around, around, a few, around a few questions. One of those questions was this. What if the behavior of the people in Corinth wasn't malicious? Think about that for a moment. What if the behavior of the people in Corinth wasn't malicious? And then I asked the question that I alluded to a moment ago from the Old Testament text. What, what if we didn't attribute motive behind what's happening within the people in Corinth? And just to be very clear, their behavior was sinful. Pride, arrogance, selfishness is always sinful. They were trying to use their associations with these different leaders as a way to gain power over others within the church in Corinth. That's sinful behavior. But when we think about those leaders, maybe we ought to ask a question or two. What was it about those leaders that led people to want to follow them? 
What was it about those leaders that led people to want to follow them to the degree where, where I can only be of Paul, or I can only be of Apollos, or I can only be of Peter? What was it about them? And if we were to flip back to Acts chapter 18, we would read that Paul founded the church. He spent 18 months there working with people. He was a tent maker. He actually converted one, if not two, of the, ta- of the temple tabernacle leaders, synagogue leaders. Those who became Christians under Paul's watch, we would consider them today, we would call them early adopters. They saw what was going on, they wanted to be a part of it, and they were. They were the founding members of the church at Corinth. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and they said, my parents were founding members or I was a founding member? This is the space that these people who are saying, I am of Paul, this is the space that they were living in. And you can understand why they thought they earned or deserved a place of power and position within the church in Corinth because they were of Paul. But something happened after 18 months. Paul left and the situation changed. At the end of Acts 18, we are introduced to this character named Apollos. And initially, he shows up in Ephesus, and, and what's kind of fascinating about Apollos' story is he's a very gifted speaker, but he only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. And this is not a message about baptism today, so we're not going to talk about that. We've covered that in the past, but he had a very limited understanding of what baptism was. He was a follower of Jesus, he preached Jesus, but he didn't understand the fullness of baptism. And what's fascinating is Priscilla and Aquila, two of the people that Paul converted in Corinth, taught Apollos, I think the NIV says a more excellent way. And then as we dig deeper into the last part of Acts chapter 18, we find that Apollos goes to Corinth. And when he arrives in Corinth... It says he refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So now he's not just Apollos, a gifted speaker. Now he's leveled up because he knows the full truth about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And if you remember what we've been talking about over the past couple weeks, as we think about what's taking place in Corinth, the values in Corinth were what? Were eloquent speech and wisdom. And Apollos has both of those things. And guess what? He's on our side. He's on our side. And you can understand why people would line up behind Apollos and those same people would then begin to think, well, the people who are in charge of the church, they ought to be people who are gifted of speech, just like Apollos. They ought to be able to go into the synagogue. They ought to be able to go into the community and debate, well, I, Paul was great, but 
man, Apollos, the way, the way he speaks, I'm of Apollos. And then we all know Peter, right? Peter's one of the 12. There's a pretty good chance that there were some people in Corinth who had a personal relationship with Peter. So they believed based on that relationship that they should have power and they should have authority. I am of Peter. And then the last name that's mentioned, Christ. And as I was reading and thinking about and and looking at different commentaries on this text, those are the people who kind of thought they were above all of the petty bickering. You might be of this person, you might be of this person, you might be of this person, but I, like I'm of Jesus, I'm above all of this. And as we talked and discussed all of this last week in our staff review, the questions of what if they weren't being malicious? What if we didn't attribute motive to the people at Corinth? There was actually a third question that came to my mind about the people in Corinth. And the question is just this. What if they needed to grieve? You ever thought about that? Think about these people who have had multiple leaders, very gifted and very talented and very skilled in their own way. And maybe, maybe what's happening in the church in Corinth is these are a group of people who just need to grieve. They need to recognize that the relationships they once had, they no longer have in the way that they had them. About 10 years ago, I came across this this statement and it said this, all relationships are situational. All relationships are situational. And then my little addition to that is, and when the situation changes, so do the relationships. I want you to take a moment and think about this. A lot of the situations in which we find ourselves are based on proximity, right? The closeness, the physical closeness with one another. That's why as a former student minister, when I would take our kids to CIY or I would take our kids to camp or I would take them on retreats, there would be this really, really, really tight bond among the middle school and high school students. And then they would say things like, usually Thursday night, because that's always the night. Usually Thursday night, they'd be like, we're going to go home and we're going to be like this forever. I'm not lying, am I, students? And then Saturday rolls around and it's like, who are you? I don't even know. I don't recognize you. See, people had been in this situation due to proximity and a very special purpose with meaning and the situation changes and the relationship changes. And when that happens, we tend to feel loss. If you're a parent and all of your kids have gone off to college, you know what I'm describing right now. Think about the number of divorces that take place after the last child leaves home. See, parents had this thing that was uniting them around their kids relationally. And when, and when those kids are gone, what happens to the relationship? 
We call that empty nest syndrome. I think it's this. I think there's something else going on. I think of small group members. What, what happens when the people in your small group shift over time or the group moves to a different day and we, and we struggle because we all of a sudden we're, we don't have the same kind of relationship that we had with people in the past. All relationships are situational. And what I would like for you to do for a moment, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. I want you to just consider how you have experienced that. Just take a moment and think about how you have experienced the reality that all relationships are situational. I want to ask you, is there something or someone that you need to grieve over in that? One of the things that I tell families all the time when I'm working with them on a funeral. You're allowed to grieve. You're allowed to feel what you feel. And many times we don't deal with grief very well in our culture. We don't know how to process it. And I think one of the things that, that needed to happen in the church in Corinth is they just needed a moment. They needed to, to recognize the situation they were in. And again, the way it was manifesting itself was sinful. We are going to talk about that. But there's something going on, I think, underneath the surface in Corinth that if we're not careful, we'll miss. And I went home that afternoon and Ann and I were having dinner together. And I was kind of telling her, about the day, and, and we were t- talking about what we had talked about in staff meeting, and, and she said something to me. She said, you are starting to feel sympathetic towards them, aren't you? And I was like, yes. And then my second thought was, dang it. Like, I wanted to be, like, I wanted to be frustrated with the people at Corinth, I want to be frustrated with people who are, who are functioning in the church like the Corinthians did. But what I need to do is I need to develop sympathy. I need to develop empathy. We need to point them to Christ. And that's what Paul does. Last week I said that Paul uses the names Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Christ, his son Jesus Christ our Lord. He uses one of, at least one of those phrases ten times in the first nine verses. And in these eight verses that we read a few minutes ago, Paul uses those same names five more times. And what Paul is out to do here is he is out to reorient everything about their entire lives around the person of Jesus. Talking about Jesus, reminding them of Jesus, asking them to think about Jesus. And while the people in Corinth, they they need to grieve, like, The more I think about this and and read the text, 
and know what's happening in the rest of the book, they absolutely need to grieve. What we're seeing in these behaviors that they're exhibiting is that's the fruit. That's the, that's the tree above ground. We talked about that, I think, last week. The tree above ground is their divisions and their fighting and their arguing and their, their preferences. That's above ground. And, and when we start to go deeper into the trunk of the tree and we start to go into the ground, what we see is there's a real problem that the people in Corinth have. The Corinthian addiction to pride, power, and prestige is represented in their tradition with an emphasis on the glory of human wisdom. See, the deeper root issue at the church at Corinth, as much as they needed to grieve, the deeper root issue at the church of Corinth is they were more Corinthian than they were Christian. They were more informed by the values of their culture of eloquence and wisdom. And they just took they took those values and they took their inability to grieve and they laid them on top of each other like a grid in their church. And along comes Apollos and he's a wonderful speaker. And man, do we love us some wonderful speakers in Corinth. I'm so glad that he's here. And because Apollos is here, then I don't have to deal with my grief. See, there's a deeper level of issues. And because they were more Corinthian than they were Christians, what they had done is they had convinced themselves that they were who they were, not because of Jesus, but because of Paul and Apollos and Peter. Those were the people that they clung to. Paul and Apollos and Peter, they were the only people that they could learn from. They were the only people who could lead them in proper worship of God. And because of their associations with them, they believed that they ought to have power. They believed that that relationship and that association gave them something. And what Paul is telling them is that their being of anyone or anything but Christ is leading to division. That's what Paul is saying. What you're going to get by focusing on these people and not focusing on Jesus is division. And that's what we see in the church. They're quarreling. They're fighting about who baptized who about who was going to baptize someone else. And this is all happening because they because ultimately they miss they misconceive the gospel. They misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this focus that they have on preference is not unifying them. It's not true wisdom and we're going to get into true wisdom Next week, when we finish out chapter one of 1 Corinthians, it's not true wisdom and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, these things that they are, that they are claiming for themselves, these associations, they're not only distracting the gospel, but they are weakening the gospel. 
They're neutering the gospel. They're removing all power from the gospel because what they've done in essence is they've made the gospel of Jesus about the gospel of themselves or the gospel of Paul or the gospel of Apollos or the gospel of Peter. And what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to reorient them around the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, you had some really great speakers. And this is about Jesus, not them. One of the phrases we used a while ago here, you might still know it. When I forget my purpose, I make life about myself. My preferences and my power, my place and my position. And this is what we see happening in the church in Corinth. As we were talking about this last week, Joe asked slash said this. When I allow my preferences to determine whether or not God can be worshipped by me, who am I putting first? And I think it's an easy space for us to fall into. We are allowed to have preferences. We all have preferences. But when our preferences begin to get in the way of the way that we respond to Jesus and the way that we worship Jesus, the people that Paul has mentioned, of which one of them is he, what's happening is these, these names that Paul is talking about aren't just names, they become idols. And they become idols because we can't worship God without them. We can't worship God unless dot, dot, dot. What is your unless dot, dot, dot? Is it about the musical style? Is it about where we have communion placed in our gathering time? Is it about our preferred speaker? Well, one of the questions that we have to have an honest conversation about is what happens when those things are no longer true? What happens when those things no longer happen? What happens when the situation changes? When the dynamic changes? When all of a sudden the church that I'm participating in changes the way they play music can I really no longer worship God and what does that say about me what does that mean in my relationship with God is it about the person is it about the music or is it about Jesus and Paul's purpose by mentioning Jesus's name so many times in this text is to remind the church at Corinth that this is about Jesus. Because Paul's going to come and go. Apollos is going to come and go. Peter's going to come and go. Jesus is coming back. None of those three are. Right? So we probably ought to worship him. Let's, let's make it about him. So again, Joe's question. When I allow my preferences to determine whether or not God can be worshipped by me, who am I putting first? 
the obvious answer to that question is me. And then Joe asked a really great question after we all acknowledged that the answer was me. He said, well, haven't I died to myself? See, as followers of Christ, we are called to die to ourselves. We're called to die to ourselves. And that's not just, I, I did this sin and now I don't do this sin anymore. I acted this way and now I don't act that way anymore. I said a few cuss words, now I say a few less. Like when we die to ourselves, we're not just dying to actions and behaviors, we're, we're dying to attitudes. We're dying to the spirit that's within us that fights for our preference and our power and our place and our position. Jesus gave the totality of himself up for us so that we would give the totality of ourselves up for him. All of ourselves. And there is a way to remember and celebrate the what and the who of the past. But not at the expense of harmony. Notice Paul doesn't say anything bad about Apollos. As we read through the rest of this text, he's not going to say anything badly about Apollos. He's not going to say anything badly about Peter. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that Jesus confronts Peter because Peter didn't understand the gospel, because Peter's understanding and misconception of the gospel at a certain point in his life was there are certain people I can't associate with. But Paul is telling us that there is a way to remember and celebrate the who and the what of the past. And it's not at the expense of harmony. There's a way to be grateful for those who've served and loved us during our lifetime. I think back to all of the people in my, in my, in my journey. I think of, think of um, Steve Rembert, my very first youth pastor. I think of friends in college. I think of my wife. I think of Dave Hubert at Marysville Christian Church. I think of Nathan Pugh at Marysville Christian Church. I think of all of the other youth leaders in that church and students within that church who discipled me. I think of Lamar's Church of Christ, the pastors there. I think of a guy named Phil Flewellen. I think of Bill Holly at Eastview Christian Church. I think of people at our church in Naperville and people at our church in Worthington, Minnesota. And I think of you here. And I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful for those influences, every single one of them. But I'm not thankful for them to the point of division and, and disharmony. Of thinking to myself, well, I could only learn under Bill Holly at Eastview Christian Church. You know how, how foolish that is of us to imagine? 
Like, surely there is, like, one person in this room who, like, you love the way I do things. Just probably one of you. Maybe my wife. There's going to come a day, and my hope is it's 15 years from now. That's my goal. I'm hoping I got a 15, 15 years here. I think that's my goal. But you know what? It could be tomorrow. The way that people in Scottsbluff County have no idea how to operate at a four-way stop makes me think, and if I ever disappear on a run, you're probably going to find me at the corner of Avenue I and Avenue M, or Five Rocks Road and Avenue I. I'll be in one of the ditches. See, the reality of it is, for the one person that likes the way I do things, at some point, I am not going to be here. And my hope, my hope is that you still will be. Because the, the thing that the foundation, and now I'm like, I, like I, can't, I can't wait to get deeper into 1 Corinthians the foundation that's being laid is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And all we're doing is building on it. And my hope and my prayer is that you will see that the foundation is found in Jesus Christ. And not in a person. And there are great people out there. But our foundation is not in them. On the day that Jesus ascended to heaven... He said this to his disciples. This will maybe sound familiar. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Your favorite speaker is not going to live forever. It's not them who are promised to be with you forever. Jesus is. One of my favorite things that we've done over the last several months is, is ask people to read their Bible just five minutes a day. And if they've let me know that, I've included them. We've created a text thread for people in that group. I was having a conversation with one of them this morning. My favorite thing about that text thread is just how, like when you just, when you just read the Bible, it's kind of amazing what comes out of it. Like when you just read the Bible, something about being sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to the marrow, like just revealing the reality of who you are. Like I just love the group so much. And this week, Sue Backer said this. So often we look at the preachers or others in the congregation for our Christian faith. What I need to focus on is Jesus. He is the true way and gives us life and truth. If I truly focus on Jesus and strive to be obedient to him, then I will live in unity with other believers.
as you consider this morning what God is saying to you through this text. I simply have a question. Are you focused on Jesus in such a way that harmony, one mind, united in thought, united in purpose, flows from you? Is that what you're focused on? This is God's desire for you. And it's God's desire for us as a church that we would be focused on him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would burrow deep into our souls. I pray that your word would speak truth to us and speak reality to us. That we would stand in front of it as a mirror. And as each and every one of us knows, sometimes the mirror reveals, reveals ugly truth about us. But it reveals a beautiful truth about you. In our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in the midst of our preferences, you love us. And you simply point us to Jesus. I pray that beyond any other thing we could ever be about as a church, no matter who is on stage, no matter what's stylistically, no matter what method we use, we want to be focused on you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.